0: You are listening to a pleasure podcast. For more from our sex podcast collective, visit pleasurepodcasts.com. So you've listened to my show, you've gotten to know the people behind the camera and in front of the camera, and you're thinking to yourself, I really want to be able to watch porn in an ethical way. I want to pay for my porn, but I don't want to join just one website where I can only get one brand's type of content or one porn stars type of content, I want to be able to access it all. This is why you should go to hotmovies.com because Hot Movies has everything. They have scenes from all of the biggest porn companies, all of your favorite porn stars. They basically have everything. And if you use code HOLLY, you can get your first 20 minutes for free So what have you got to lose? Support this industry and also get access to all of the hottest, latest releases at hotmovies.com. And do not forget to use my code HOLLY for 20 minutes free. Holly Randall Unfiltered is also brought to you by Adam and Eve. AdamandEve.com is like the biggest online superstore for all of your sex needs. They've got toys, they've got lingerie, they've got movies. It's pretty much a one-stop shop for everything sexy. Now, you'll get 10 free gifts when you order one item. Something for her, something for him, something you'll both enjoy, and six free movies, plus free shipping. All you have to do is enter code HOLLY at checkout. That's H-O-L-L-Y at for your 10 free gifts. Today on the show, I am absolutely beyond thrilled to have John Ronson on. He's a brilliant journalist uh, for those of you who don't know, he's a regular contributor to various NPR shows including my favorite podcast, This American Life. Also, he's written some best-selling books. And most recently, he has done some podcasts on the adult industry, which I think are incredibly relevant and absolutely fascinating. And this is coming from somebody who's an adult industry insider. He produced The Butterfly Effect and, most recently, The Last Days of August. There's so much ground to cover. I don't even want to get into it now because uh this is this is a pretty long episode because we just had a lot to talk about and um it's a very intense one and it gets um kind of emotional at times so i just want to warn you guys about that but uh overall it's it's a brilliant one and i'm I'm so thrilled about this so let's welcome john ronson to holly randall unfiltered (laughs) Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the show. Welcome to a very special edition of Holly Randall Unfiltered. I am so honored to have the incredible John Ronson here, John, how are you? I
1: am well Holly, and uh, thank you first, thank you for coming to me. I know this of is of course
0: not, um. I was hoping everybody would think that I redesigned my studio, (laughs) got rid of all that horrible, I mean, beautiful artwork, and that I did not put up on the walls, by the way. I just want to point that out. Um, And, uh, you know, had this beautiful, like, color palette behind me and uh, (laughs) lovely green couch. But no, no, we are at John's uh, hotel because he's a busy man. And uh, so we came to him.
1: Yeah. You know, the swimming pool right below where we are, one day, um, Bruce Springsteen was staying here. And he saw a man sitting by the pool in a wheelchair... And they started talking, and the guy was the guy who wrote "Born on the Fourth of July." And as a result of Bruce Springsteen meeting that guy by the pool just there, Bruce Springsteen wrote "Born in the USA."
0: Wow! Yes. Oh my god, that is amazing. I know. And there's a huge poster of Robert Plant hanging above the pool, like absolutely fucking massive.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, like, I mean, how many Robert Plants do you think would fit into that one Robert Plant? Like fifty.
0: <laughs> um, yeah.
1: And his eyes follow you around the room. Um, (laughs) One look at him with his dangerous eyes and you get pregnant.
0: (laughs) Oh, good, because my mother's been bugging me for ages. (laughs) Yeah, this is a very Hollywood hotel. Um, And then can you tell us about your uh, little experience that you had?
1: It depends when this is going out.
0: This is going to go out in like uh, about a week, no, like two weeks.
1: Oh, and that guess I can, because they will have checked out by then. Oh, right. Uh, you don't want
0: people coming. Yes. Well, we still haven't said the name of. Oh, right. Actually, we haven't said. We the name haven't of the said the name of the That's hotel. That's true.
1: Well, yeah. So I was on the balcony last night, and there was a lady in the room opposite, and she waved at me, and it was Debbie Harry from Blondie.
0: That is so cool. Who,
1: when I was twelve, I I, I was so, Debbie Harry was such a kind of mythical figure. Um, in all of our lives, like when we were 12 years old, that I lived in Cardiff in Wales Mm -hmm. and the rumor went around Cardiff that Blondie were coming to Cardiff and everyone got so excited and, but it was a lie. Blondie weren't going to come to Cardiff and then, um, almost 40 years later, um, She's waving at me from, from her room across
0: the thing. God, that is so cool. I
1: know. I, I was such a fan of Blondie and, and um, still am.
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, they're amazing. And she's so beautiful still. Yes. Like, looks amazing. Oh, my God. And looks incredible. So you're Welsh.
1: Yeah, sort of. Well, I mean, yes. And... In fact, definitely. Yeah.
0: Do you uh, ever get, do you ever like try to make the distinction from people when they say that you're British, that you're like, actually, I'm Welsh?
1: No, I don't.
0: Because <laughs> you don't want to explain no. that it's actually a different country? <laughs> well, no, mainly because I don't
1: feel a huge amount of of um, Welshness inside of me. Mm-hmm. But for a few reasons. First, because my parents were both English. I mean, I grew up, I, I was born and grew up in Wales, mm-hmm. but my parents were both English. My dad was from London and my mother was from Southport, which was near Liverpool. Mm-hmm. Also, at the time, Cardiff wasn't that Welsh. It, it didn't have, like, Welsh pride. It sort of wanted to be English mm. a bit. That's changed now, but at the time. and But also, I had, like, a bad time in Cardiff. So, really, my Cardiff experience was like, when can I leave Cardiff?
0: Was it just growing up there? How long did you oh, did like, you spend, like, your whole childhood yeah.
1: there? Yeah. I was, like, kind of, you know... Picked on at school, I never really fitted in. I wasn't like you know, I was a square peg in a round hole. Mm. Um, so really, my my Cardiff experience was basically how do I, how do I escape? Right. Um, and so I would escape through, you know, going to there was an art cinema called Chapter, and you know, I'd go and see Scorsese films there, and, uh, and I'd escape, you know, by listening to like Blondie and people like that, and thinking, God, there's a life outside this this life.
0: Did that, is that, no, this actually leads into my next question, was how did you get into journalism? Was that connected at all from, like, being a child and not feeling like a place where you were and wanting to kind of break out and explore and do other things, explore other places.
1: Yeah, I'd say both sort of um, like literally and also theoretically, mm-hmm. So, theori- um, or, or kind of metaphorically. So metaphorically, like I think if you're sort of like a bullied kid and you're like pushed to the edge of the class, of the of the playground, mm-hmm. what are you doing? You're like on the edge looking in, mm-hmm. sort of scrutinizing people yeah. and trying to figure out like what they got against me. So, So I think that's a good, way for a journalist to grow up because you don't want to be like part of the elite you want to be the outsider looking looking in and trying to figure things out yeah and then literally when I was 16 my mother um kind of forced me to volunteer at the local radio station um and and as a result of that and then the the kind of DJs took me under their wing and um and then as a result of that because I wasn't academic at all I got into journalism school And, and, um, and, and yeah, then it was, and then when I was at journalism school, I I started writing for the college paper. And when I was about 18, my teacher took me to a cafe and said, you're the only person who writes for the college paper who knows how to write. (laughs) And and it was honestly, it feels like that was the first, like, time somebody was telling me what to do with my life. Yeah. Um, So... And he was a very charismatic... He he died young. He died when he was about 50. Um, But he was a very kind of charismatic man, teacher. And and I I, I thought, okay, if that's true about me, then I guess I'll be a writer.
0: So that's where you kind of saw your path opening up before you?
1: Yeah, pretty much. And then... and then I started working with bands. Um, mm-hmm. when I was in, when I was at college in London, I became the entertainment's officer for the, for the, for the student union. Mm-hmm. So I'd book a whole load of bands, including like kind of like amazing bands. And, and, um, but one of the bands I booked was this indie band called The Man from Del Monte. And I got on well with them and they asked me to move to Manchester to become their manager. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I, so I quit college and became their manager. And then I also played keyboards in a, in a band called Frank Sidebottom Band and the, the singer had a big fake head that he never took off. Um, this
0: was like the 1st Dead Mouse, y-
1: Yeah. Um, or I guess um, Daft Punk or... Oh, yeah, the yeah, Residence. yeah. I guess
0: they were, yes, they were the first yeah. helmet-wearing mm-hmm. band but, that made it into the mainstream eye. I don't know. Yeah,
1: <laughs> but Frank, I wouldn't say Frank ever made it into the mainstream, right. but he was a very mysterious figure because he wore a big fake head and nobody knew what he looked like. Right, 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 right. Uh, I guess if you want to be mysterious, that's yeah. what you should do. Uh, so when I was in Manchester, some of the bands that I, you know, some of the band members were making a little bit of extra money by writing for the local magazine. And so I started doing that. And it became very clear that I was definitely more cut out for writing than either music management or keyboard playing, (laughs) because I still only know how to play CF and G.
0: (laughs) So you were really in Manchester when like that whole, the music scene was exploding back then.
1: Yes, I I got, I got really lucky. I moved to Manchester probably a year before all of that happened. The Stone Roses, the Happy Mondays, Mm -hmm. the Inspiral Carpets, like or 808 State, all of those bands um so yeah I got to experience all of that I was at all the kind of now um legendary shows like Stone Roses at Spike Island and then in fact when I moved back to London I hit another um massive movement uh, which started just after I moved back to London which was Britpop which was like Blur and and yeah. um all of those bands so, so I got to experience two great musical movements like i being right in the middle of them both
0: so did you start off were you kind of more of like a music journalist? No, um, I, you
1: know, um, I I remember like the moment I sort of found my voice, it was from copying somebody else's voice. And it was, uh, there was this magazine called The Sunday Correspondent. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, this is the sort of weirdest Damascus moment to have. So um, it was the first ever issue of The Sunday Correspondent. And I went to the newsagents and on my way back home, I, I was reading the magazine and there was an article in the magazine about a professional Andrew Lloyd Webber lookalike and how hard it was for him to get work. And, <laughs> um, and then they also interviewed a friend of his who was like a bit embittered and said he's beginning to think he is Andrew Lloyd Webber. <laughs> and I was, and I was walking back reading this and just thinking this, thinking this is what I want to do. I want to yeah. like find these amazing stories. Right. And, and um, uh, and uh, yeah, so I wrote to the Sunday Correspondent and said, "Can I come and write for you?" and and they said yes. I sent them some of the stuff I'd written for the College Paper and the Manchester Paper.
0: So did that open up the doors for you to explore like really interesting different? Because all of your all of your stories and everything that you're known for, it's all such incredibly different, you know, interesting pieces like snapshots of of people's lives.
1: Yes, um, I suppose I'm always like drawn to to mystery to trying to understand a world that I don't know right uh so I've done that you know many times over the years um I so what am I looking for I suppose definitely mystery I'm not one of those writers you you know you you obviously specialize in a particular area which you Mm. then explore in in you know so many different ways right um and I've I have you know friends who do similar stuff uh you know know, it could be medicine or feminism or or something but I've never wanted to do that because for me the kind of wind behind my sails is trying to understand a world that I don't understand or or solve a mystery Mm -hmm. and then once I feel like I've got there I've Mm -hmm. got to whatever destination it is I then feel like I have to move on into to another world Mm -hmm. um and I don't quite know why that is why I'm not the kind of writer who can just specialize in a certain area but I'm just not
0: What was your first kind of big breakthrough that you thought you felt like put you on the map or put you somewhere where you're like, okay, now I'm kind of becoming like this, I mean, Mm -hmm. because you're a very well respected, well known journalist. So Mm -hmm. was there, what was the first story that you felt put you there?
1: Um, the first story? Yeah, okay, I can, I know the answer to that. Um, I, it was a story called, um, uh, Tottenham Ayatollah. Mm -hmm. Um, And what happened was, so I've been writing about sort of idiosyncratic people. Mm -hmm. And then a commissioning editor at a TV station in Britain said to me, um, that there was this Islamic militant leader. This is like pre way pre nine 11. This Mm -hmm. is like 1995, I think or 1996. Mm -hmm. Uh, that there was this kind of firebrand Islamist leader who lived really close to me, Mm -hmm. who had just announced that he wouldn't rest until he saw the flag of Islam flying over Downing Street and the White House.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. Um, And this guy said, would you like to, you know, do you want to try and shadow him? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: Um, And he hooked me up with this filmmaker called Saul Dib. And the two of us spent a year following Omar around. Uh, And one of the things that was kind of unique about it was that it happened to coincide with small video cameras. Uh, Until then, if you wanted to make a documentary, you had like a van full of people. It was horrific Um, because it's like, Being on a movie set, yeah, you know, you can't get to reality when.
0: I was going to say it's probably hard to get authenticity from the people that you're trying to cover when you've got like a massive camera crew behind you. It's so intimidating, all those cameras and equipment.
1: And in fact, I'd made a TV series before that called the Ronson Mission, and I just hated it. I mean, it was ridiculous because it was like a massive break, like my own. I was Mm -hmm. like 25, and my own TV show on the BBC. I mean, when I look back at it now, it's like. Jesus, yeah, um, and it kind of came from nowhere. I was writing a column in Time Out magazine, and they sort of just asked me if I wanted to make my own TV show, and 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 I, and I hated it. I hated every minute of it. Really, for that reason, it mm. was like you know I, I was thinking, this I'm not a journalist here. I'm like an actor, um, and um, so I hated it and vowed never to do it again. But then these new cameras came along, which were like tiny, and and it was me and Saul just just ingratiating ourselves in a in this sort of band of militant Islamists, some of whom years later would go on to become like, you know, suicide bombers. And uh, wow. we had no idea at the time because there hadn't been any major mm-hmm. Islamist terrorist attack at the time. We, mm-hmm. we, you know, we didn't see them as being sort of dangerous. Uh, but but we were right in the heart of, of, of it. And um, so couple the subject matter with the fact that, Really, this was the first British mainstream documentary that was that had that was using these tiny cameras, which meant there was a kind of intimacy that mm-hmm. was that most people hadn't managed to get, and so it became a really influential documentary, kind of for that reason. Mm. Um, so other commissioning editors were like f- making their documentary makers watch Tottenham Ayatollah to to and saying like, this is a new way that we can make films. Right. So so that was definitely my big break. I remember Adam Curtis, who's like one of the great documentary makers um, kind of ever um, came up to me. We've had a screening of Tottenham Atal and he came up to me afterwards and said, this is going to do you a lot of good. And sure enough, it became like the thing that springboarded me.
0: Yeah, it must have really kind of opened your eyes to... Like, did you you see your own culture differently after that?
1: Um, I remember... I mean, I remember being a little bit wrong, I suppose. Mm. I I remember... um, this guy called Mike Wine from the Board of Deputies for British Jews, kind of cornering me and saying, "The you know you and the world hasn't woken up to what militant Islamism really means." Mm-hmm. Um, so, I, I, and I remember thinking, "Oh, you're just being you know," I'm sure that's not true because because they hadn't done anything like right. to, to make me think that they would be dangerous. Right. Um, so I remember thinking that. I will tell you what the show was though. It was a little. I'd be lying if I said it was as kind of empathetic and humanistic as the stuff that I do nowadays. Right. Uh, really, my my kind of goal was to honestly, I, like, my goal was to poke gentle fun at Omar, mm-hmm. um, and because um, uh, I was young and yeah. and kind of ambitious, and I just thought this would be this would be good for my, you know. for for, you know for my work for my career right um I was like 25 26 maybe but all of that's changed I mean I would never go into any story now thinking I'm going to poke fun at this person right it sort of shows how much I've changed over the years
0: yeah and I think that that so that kind of leads me to um you know getting to the butterfly effect in the last days of August Mm -hmm. you know the adult industry as a kind of marginalized group of people has always been really wary of outside quote unquote mainstream um mm. press coverage you know documentaries whatnot because so often there's been an angle and there's been an agenda and it's always right. like a porn destroys you and destroys your life and it's bad yeah. for you and these poor people, poor victims or it's right, gonna say yeah Vi- you know these women are just victims, and you know none of them, uh, you know, have agencies over their careers or m- made this decision, you know, with any kind of clear thinking. And um, I think mm. that you know you've been different in that you've come in um, without that kind of agenda, and that you have been um, careful and empathetic. And and I and I feel and I know a lot of other people in the industry also feel you know that you you came in. <clears throat> with an open mind and wanting to kind of learn about the adult industry. Mm. um, So why did you – like what brought you to create the Butterfly Effect? And then I guess also too for those people who haven't listened to that podcast, could you just briefly explaining explain what it's about and then tell me what – made you decide to do it
1: sure okay so when i was writing this book about public shaming oh. um i wrote a book called so you've been publicly shamed about uh what you can imagine
0: yes. um <coughs> which is a big topic these days it happens to people constantly yes. it's insane yes
1: um And I think a couple of us, I think like me and Monica Lewinsky and a couple of other people kind of spotted, you know, this change quite early on. Mm. So Monica did her TED Talk and I did my, I wrote my book about it. And um, yeah, but but it was really, it was hard and painful um, for so many different reasons. Uh, One was um, the fact that I, I was spending, you know, two or three years getting people to relive the most traumatizing moments of their lives. Yeah. Which, which d- definitely had an impact, you know, on 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 me, and and then when the book came out, everybody had a fucking opinion on it. Like everyone. <laughs> you don't say. Yeah. What a surprise! <laughs> it was like it felt like throwing it felt like throwing a hand grenade into the world. Releasing that book, and if you're an introvert like I am, who doesn't want, like I don't want to be massively discussed. Like that doesn't give, bring me any pleasure at all. Right, right, right. Um, and I'd wake up in the middle of the night to go to the toilet and I'd check Twitter and there'd be like 900, you know, notifications. And it was everybody having an opinion about my book. Um, so that, so I was, you know, I, I grew.
0: Were you aware that you were probably going to get that kind of blowback when you were writing it?
1: Well, I remember my publisher, um, my American publisher, wrote, sent me some cookies and said, fasten your seatbelt. <laughs> <laughs> It's gonna be it's gonna be a bumpy ride or something. So, so I I wrote back to him. I said, "What are you talking about?" And he said, "Some people are going to hate the book." And I thought, "No one's going to hate it. How could they? I'm right." <laughs> that was uh,
0: right. Um, everybody on the internet is right. Yeah,
1: exactly.
0: Everybody on Twitter <laughs> is right.
1: Yeah. So exactly. So everybody had an opinion. Yeah. And and for a little while, it got kind of ferocious. Mm. Like people were trying to. You know, people people who try to like bring me down, which is like, really stressful. Ooh. And these are people who haven't even read the book. The book is an impeccable book.
0: Were you? It's, you, it's you not a polemic.
1: Brett Snellis has just brought out a, a polemical version of, of of my book, where okay. it's like you know, millennial ideologues are all terrible. You know, blah yeah. blah blah. You know, my book's way more subtle and nuanced and humanistic than right, than, and, and, and you know, thoughtful and curious. You know, than did, that.
0: Did you find it slightly ironic that you were being shamed for writing a book about being publicly I, shamed? I,
1: I, I did. <laughs> but, I, but then eventually I thought, well, I guess that stands to reason. Yeah. I guess that's going to happen. Yeah. Um, but in the middle of it, uh, I was, I think I was mentioning on Twitter that I was writing a book about public shaming. And I got a DM from, you know, my first ever porn friend, mm. uh, Connor Habib. Did, okay. Uh he, he ran well at the time he was running that advocacy group, I've forgotten the name of it, with Chanel Preston. Oh, APAC. APAC, yes. Adult
0: Protection Advocacy Committee.
1: Yes. So Connor was a, a, a gay porn performer who was co running APAC with Chanel Preston. So so I I met him just out he, he I was sort of curious and mm-hmm. he seemed nice and um and he suggested to me why don't I do something about how people try and live out their shameful thoughts through, uh, through porn. Mm. Uh, I, I think what he meant was, you know, why do, well, what he literally meant was, why don't you go on one of Princess Donna's shoots? And there could be something really interesting about how you sort of, I don't know, what's, what's the right word for this? Like how you play out your kind of darkest thoughts in, in, in a way that kind of empowers you. you. You know what I mean, right?
0: Yeah, like the kind of strange fetishes that people have. You know, almost re- sometimes like reliving like childhood experiences or something like that, and somehow it becomes sexualized. Yes, I don't exactly. know if there's like a particular word for it. Yeah, and you're much more of a wordsmith than I am. Yeah, and I, just, I know I, exactly what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, so so I contacted um, Princess Donna, mm-hmm. and I was actually staying in a hotel just around the corner from here, and uh, I said, will you meet me for dinner?" And she said, "You know, sure." So uh, so I sort of I was I sat there at half past seven, and at about quarter to nine. She still hadn't showed up, so I kind of checked her Twitter and she tweeted something like, who the fuck was I supposed to meet again? Why don't I ever write this shit down? So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so I kind of went back to my room and, and, then, um, and then met her the next day. Mm-hmm. And she invited me to her shoot, uh, which was a kink shoot, but it mm-hmm. wasn't in San Francisco, it was mm-hmm. in the Valley. Okay. Uh, the, the performer was Jodie Taylor. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you know her. Uh,
0: uh probably but maybe no okay um i was gonna say the name sounds familiar but then also the first name jody and the last name taylor uh, has been a part of many porn names so yes who knows <laughs> <laughs>
1: well and and it was kind of it was fun but very different i mean since then subsequent to that pretty much every porn shoot i've ever been on has been one of my quasars mm. and that's a very different experience to, mm-hmm. to um the my first experience right and one of the differences is just how long it took and, and uh, to set up and to i couldn't believe it like i got there at like 9 p.m and they still hadn't shot anything like midnight and i was in that like, i was on like new york times that was like 3 a.m and i was just thinking like is this is for miss donna yeah yeah not for quasar he's no quick. no oh yeah he's quick as anything yeah like i didn't realize it. he's that, the fastest yeah. i don't know anyone who shoots faster than him yeah and it's it's you know, wonderful. Yeah, I wish everybody could be that fast. I wish I could be that fast, right? <laughs> um, but with Princess Donna, it just went on forever, and I was just thinking, oh, please ejaculate so I can go
0: to sleep. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times that exact <laughs> thought has come into my mind, and everybody else is on the crew. Right. Oh my god!
1: <laughs> and also, people kept kind of rubbing my back to make sure I was okay. This lovely guy called Sh- Shila Kobe does his name ring a bell? Mm-mm. Okay. I, well, he was, you know, he was really making sure that I was okay, and I was thinking, like, God, you know, you know, you're getting old when people considerately rub your back on a porn set. <laughs> That's a sign that you're getting old. <laughs> I like, yeah, and um, and then I met Donna the next day, uh-huh. and here's the moment that I'm leading to in that incredibly long story. So she came to my hotel. Um, the receptionist phoned, phoned my room and said, you know, your guest is waiting for you downstairs. So I went downstairs and everybody else in the lobby was dressed like how I dress in mm-hmm. sort of, you know, shapeless hoodies, mm-hmm. uh, except for Donna, who was dressed in a kind of very, very tight, um, bright dress. Right. And kind of very high heels and, and you know, looked look like a, you know, looked like a... Porn star? Porn star, yeah. <laughs> uh, so I walked towards her and i happened to glance over at the receptionist and the receptionist was looking at her and the look on his face was of utter contempt mm. like what what are you doing in my you know yeah. in, in my she she uh domain right and i just thought uh, you know i just thought that that was a that was presumably very hypocritical of him mm. like i'm sure You would be comfortable with a porn star when she's on your computer, Mm -hmm. but not in your vicinity. Mm -hmm. And that just that look stayed with me. And Mm -hmm. and then maybe a year or two later, after so you've been publicly shamed came out, and I was having such a miserable time, you know, with everybody sort of yelling about the book. And uh, and I don't want to oversell that. Most people really really like the book,
0: but it's always the people. That's the thing. It's like the. It's always the like. It's usually the minority that yells the loudest.
1: Yes. Um, Yeah. The, the Yeah. Um, so I thought, whatever I want to do next, I want it to be more fun. Mm-hmm. And I remembered that look and I thought, I bet, I bet like being on, you know, being in the porn world will be kind of more fun than, you know, spending time with people who were, you know, devastated by being publicly shamed on right, the internet. Right, right, uh, So I started reading blogs. I thought, well, I don't really know anything about the porn world um, so I started reading blogs. I remember finding a blog by Stoyer. And Stoyer's blog was like she was very annoyed about a man called Fabian. And then, and then I read somebody else's blog. And they also were like really annoyed about this man called Fabian. So my question was like, what concerns porn people? And the answer turned out to be, they were all concerned by this man called Fabian. (laughs) And And Fabian is the man who gave the world Pornhub. Yes. Uh, So so I guess something clicked in my head then, like why don't I tell a story about the consequences of the tech takeover of the porn industry? Mm -hmm. And so that, that was my starting point.
0: Holly Randall Unfiltered is brought to you by the Calm app. Life is hectic these days. As a society, we're overstimulated and overstressed. Studies have shown that rates of anxiety and depression is skyrocketing. And now more than ever, we need balance and relaxation in our lives. This is where the Calm app comes in. It's got everything from relaxing music to help you wind down at night, to sleep stories read by the soothing voices of celebrities like Stephen Fry and Matthew McConaughey, to guided meditations— and there are so many different kinds of meditations. You can choose them by experience level, length of the meditation, or subject matter. For example, right now I'm doing the seven days of focus meditations, and it's really helped me recognize the distractions in my life and streamline my tasks so I'm more productive. The Calm app has so many options to help you manage your hectic life and bring you more serenity. So go to calm.com holly to get 25% off your first month. You'll get unlimited access to all that Calm has to offer. Over 40 million people have already used this app, and the feedback has been astounding. Personally, it's my favorite app on my phone. So remember, go to calm.com holly. That's C-A-L-M dot slash H-O-L-L-Y and get 25% off your first month. You deserve a little more peace in your life, and Calm can help you get there. So mm-hmm. the butterfly effect is such a, you know, appropriate title for that podcast cuz you mm-hmm. talk about the ripple effect that free porn has had on society mm-hmm. and you go into all of these incredibly, you know, these corners that I just never expected. You know, you yeah. don't think about um I mean obviously we know about, you know, what it's done to our industry in in general but you don't think about how far reaching these these tendrils go
1: yeah both in terms of the lives of people in the industry and outside Yeah, and outside too
0: yeah so was there one story in particular that kind of hit you the hardest or was the most I don't know affected you the most I should say
1: Uh, yeah but in a positive way um it was uh it was when I was on the set. So what happened was I, I went to see. I spent a bit of time, like with Fabian and with mm-hmm. other pornhub people, all these kind of tech bros up mm-hmm. in up in Montreal. Um, and then, and then I thought, well, it's time for me to go to the Valley. So the very first thing I did. By then, I'd hooked up with Lena, our, our producer. Mm-hmm. And the very first thing we did was um, go and see Mark Spiegler, and he. I didn't actually realise it was late at night and I was tired and a little bit grumpy. And I actually didn't realise that that meeting with Mark Spiegler was totally make or break. Like, like if he hadn't liked me, then I think, you know, the doors would have slammed shut. Mm-hmm. But and I think, you know, I had no idea how important that meeting was going to be. Um, but he did like us and introduced us to Mike Quasar and we became kind of embedded in, in Mike Quasar's world. Uh, which was great because he's so lovely mm-hmm. and kind and respectful and so on. Um, so, so
0: that's exactly what he thinks, but with like a humorous yeah. tint to it. So it's like easier to swallow.
1: And uh, and has this just really funny love-hate relationship with his job. Yes, yes. You know, <laughs> I think part of it, you know, it's like he, he always talks about how much he hates it. Yeah. And just what a nightmare it is to spend your life carefully framing scrotums out of shots, <laughs> Which I didn't actually quite realise was a thing. Do, 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 do you have that? Well, similar? if he's
0: shooting softcore. Right. Yeah.
1: He seemed to imply that... That, um,
0: Or is he trying to avoid getting too much, man, like, man-ass? Uh, yes. Yeah. I well, there's certain positions about. where, like, it's just too... Like, if the guy goes up and over and doggy, it's just like all man-ass and a lot of balls. No one wants that. Well, I mean, it depends on who you ask.
1: But uh, most
0: of our viewers do not want that, yes. I guess that, yeah, that must be what he was referring to.
1: (laughs) So anyway, I was on the set Stepdaughter Cheerleader Orgy (laughs) and um, he had um, hired a second cameraman because, you know, there was nine people having sex. Uh, And this guy called Nate. Uh And Nate's head... um, it's a rare day for me shooting real porn. And I said, What do you mean? And he said, Oh, well, these days we I just do customs. And I said, like, what are customs? And mm-hmm. he explained the whole world of customs, which is for anybody listening to this who doesn't know. Um, because of Pornhub kind of decimating the industry, a lot of porn people have had to find new ways to make money. And one way of making money is to shoot these things called customs, which is if if you have a if you have a if you've always wanted to see a porn film, but it's so strange that nobody's ever thought to make it, you can now commission a team of professional porn people, like, you know, people like Casey Calvert mm-hmm. or... Uh, do you do customs ever?
0: Um No, because I'm too expensive. Right, okay. Yeah. Um, not that I wouldn't, but if someone wants to pay me an enormous amount of money to shoot it, I will.
1: Right. I was actually quite surprised at how reasonable the prices were. Yeah.
0: Like, you can... You can well, there's not a... Ma- there's usually not a massive amount of production value put into it. Right. Like, I tend to... I'm pretty strict about I always have a makeup artist like I always have a couple assistants like I'm real picky about how I shoot stuff so usually it ends up costing too much money to warrant a custom video so
1: right got yeah um well when I heard about the existence of custom films I just immediately thought I want to
0: it's so fascinating. It's so fascinating, yeah. because
1: you know, as a writer, you're always trying to look into people's souls, and yeah. what a unusual way to look into someone's soul is to to see that the porn film that they've commissioned just for themselves. Yeah, and and I was looking for kind of. Not, um, I immediately thought I want to find ones that aren't obviously sexual because mm-hmm. I just think they will be more interesting. And, right. Uh, so yeah, so we entered into the world of bespoke porn. And not only did we find the most incredible examples of it, um, but also we just found this really kind of beautiful relationship between the producers and the clients. Mm. And it just felt like everybody just trying to help each other. Like like the clients were trying to fill some sort of psychological hole by commissioning these films but also, it meant a lot to the producers too. You know, people like Dan and Rhiannon of Anatomic Media, and it just felt very—I just felt unexpectedly moving. Yeah. So, so that was like that was the most affecting consequence in a positive way of of the Pornhub ripple effect.
0: Yeah, there's a real intimacy there because I think you know when you're—I mean, people have such a bizarre sexual fantasies and so many people have been shamed into Mm -hmm. keeping those inside them and to never, you know, Mm -hmm. allow other people to know what gets you off because sexuality is such a strange thing and it taps into so many different aspects of our, our lives, our experiences, our personalities and that kind of stuff. So, um, and it's interesting now too, you know, with society in general kind of moving towards like being against um, such things as shaming, and I, I, you know, I've been in the industry a long time ago. So I remember, like ten years ago, you know, we would talk about some bizarre custom video that somebody would make, and we would laugh about how crazy it was. And mm-hmm. now people are like, "Don't kink shame," yeah. and I was like, "What is that word?" But kink <laughs> shaming is a thing, and if yes. you think about it, I mean, it's 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 totally understandable. These are some very deep and personal, um, you know, things mm. that these people are kind of revealing and, and yeah. wanting to explore and wounds sometimes. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so it it isn't, you know yeah. sometimes it's hard not to laugh at some of these things, but I mean ultimately, you know, you
1: can laugh and kind of still be respectful. And I think yeah. some I think some of the people who commission films would laugh too. I mean they yes. would realise it's kind of silly. Silly or ridiculous. I mean one that pops into my mind is Christina Carter. Mm-hmm. Uh, um and she was commissioned to make a film where she's Wonder Woman and she keeps trying to get up and leave the house. But a tiny gremlin is hiding behind the sofa and pops her on the head and stuns <laughs> her and she can't leave the house. So we we talked to the guy who commissioned the video and, and his story was that when he was five, his mother left them and he was like sitting on her suitcase trying to stop her from leaving. Um, But she left and his only memory of her is his his mother leaving. So he said there's a direct correlation between that experience and him commissioning that Gremlin Wonder Woman video.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I remember there was a model that uh, I used to work with quite a bit named Candlebox. And I think the strangest uh, custom video she said she ever did was when somebody paid her to sit fully clothed on a duffel bag for nine minutes.
1: And <laughs> not say anything.
0: And yeah, that right. was it. Just sit on this duffel bag. And you think like this kid was probably uh-huh. put, you know, when he was a kid, he being bullied, probably put in a duffel bag. I mean, who knows like what yeah. story is Might behind have been the that. the same guy. I know, I know right? Yeah. <laughs> 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 um,
1: so, yeah. So I found that lovely, a really a genuinely lovely moving experience making The Butterfly Effect. Yeah. Um, I mean, you know, it's not to say there wasn't, Some dark moments.
0: Yeah, the one about the kid who was um, named as a sex offender. Yeah, was a really disturbing one. Really, that really bothered me. And the fact that he was he was under the age of eighteen, right? Mm. And he also was like on the spectrum, didn't he? Like Asperger's, Asperger's, and and and
1: actually quite relatively high on on the spectrum, I'd say. And um, yeah, he he was trying to you know uh, uh, trying to chat up a girl. And he thought he was aping dialogue that he saw in porn films. And he texted her something like, I want to tie you up and rape you from behind or something. But but it was literally just him aping a line of dialogue that he'd seen in a film.
0: Mm -hmm. Not understanding what he meant by saying that.
1: Yeah. Oh, that's certainly the story that he told me. And, And I didn't have any reason to not believe him. Right. And, um, he ended up on the sex offenders registry for like 25 years. That's crazy. Uh, and the, like how that affects your life. I mean, you might as well be in, in prison. Right. You know, the, the amount of restrictions that, that are imposed on your life.
0: Yeah, I wasn't aware of all of that until I listened to that that yeah. portion.
1: Nor me. That was Lena, actually. I, I remember um, I was at LAX with, with Lena. We were waiting for our bags and just sort of talking about what other... What other areas can we look in? And she said she'd always wanted to do something about the sex offenders registry. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, wouldn't it be? I wonder whether anyone's on the sex offenders registry because, mm-hmm. because of Pornhub in some way. Right. So we then did like a few months research and right. then we found this, this kid that way.
0: And then you, and then I feel like you you achieved this monumental thing by actually Inter- not only interviewing Fabian, mm. which is, I, I, I don't know how you agreed to get him to do that. But then you also somehow facilitated a dialogue between him and Mike Quasar, <laughs> yeah, Mike which Quasar. I really don't know how you did that. So how did you convince <laughs> Fabian to to I do this to interview? Mike.
1: Well, I was actually, I, I hadn't planned it, but I was interviewing Fabian. So I interviewed Fabian at the very beginning of the process. And at the end, and I said to him at the end of the interview, like, I want to go to the Valley to look at the impact that you have had on, on mm-hmm. the Valley. Um, can I come back after I've returned to tell you what I found? And he said, yes, you know, that he'd be interested. So then when I went back to tell him what I'd found, I just said to him, like, and this wasn't planned at all. I said to him, well, you know, there's this guy called Mike Quasar who, like, really hates you, like, (laughs) thinks you've completely ruined his life. Yeah. Um, hey, maybe I can put the two of (laughs) you together. And he kind of went, Sure, <laughs> <Like that. laughs> there was this kind of gulp. Yeah, the way he said "sure" really didn't sound sure.
0: Right, right. But,
1: but he, but he went for it. Bless him. Um, and yeah, it was fascinating. I mean, I it was, and it was great for me because I didn't have to do anything. I just right. I had to introduce them and then just listen. Yeah. God, I wish all journalism was like that.
0: I know, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Make your job a lot easier. <laughs> Would you know? It's interesting. So I work for MindGeek, um, who owns Pornhub. Mm-hmm. So. I don't know if how much you keep track of, um, you know of what? Yeah, and, the mm. changes that have happened, but Pornhub is and you it's know got better, right? Yeah, I mean they've definitely made some huge leaps and bounds to help benefit the adult industry. And I know a lot of people are going to say like, oh, well you work for them, so you're automatically going to jump to their defense, which is you know an understandable mm-hmm. conclusion to make. Um, mm. But I'm just saying, like from a you know, neutral position. That um, there has been some some big changes that they've made. Yeah. Um, I do know that they, you know, are the major donors towards um, like the Free Speech Coalition and stuff mm-hmm. like that. Um, have you seen this new bee um, promotion thing mm-hmm. that they're doing for Save the Bees? No. So they have this brand new. It just came out like last week, uh-huh. and it's this really interesting marketing ploy where um, they are creating these, it's called Bee Sexual, and they're creating these bee porno movies mm-hmm. where they literally have footage of bees, you know, doing right. their thing, pollinating, and then they have porn stars come in and do voiceovers. Pretending like to be the bees. Be, pretending to be the bees, like they're right. having sex. So like a porn bee movie, because Jerry Seinfeld There's did that, right? There's so... Uh, many puns right. that can be had here <laughs> so that's like their their new thing they've just um rolled out and uh they are promoting it very heavily and for every view that these porno bee movies get um they are donating a portion to um save the bees wow
1: and i've noticed that they do i remember one time i was on one of my quasar sets mm-hmm. and janice Griffith Walton yes. And she was wearing a Pornhub t-shirt. Yes. Just to annoy Mike. Yes. And um they had a conversation about it. We didn't record this, but mm-hmm. I we overheard it. And um Janice Griffith said, you know, you know, I've got my own page on Pornhub mm-hmm. and I and I get and I make money that way. Yep. And um and Mike and I think that's, you know, obviously I think that's great. Mm-hmm. Um but Mike did say, like, how much money do you make? And she she kind of told a figure I can't remember I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna invent some figures to mm-hmm. tell the story now so Mike said you know how much money did you did you make this month from Pornhub and she said ah you know five thousand dollars or ten thousand dollars and Mike mm-hmm. said how many hits does that equate to and Dennis Griffith said you know 450 million I mean I, I'm, I'm making these right. figures up okay and um Mike said you know if this was DVD sales, you know, you would be insanely rich now. So that was his point. It's like, okay, Pornhub helps porn people monetize now, but it's still nowhere near enough. Like the amount right. of money that they're making is so much worse than it than it was right. in the pre-Pornhub days.
0: It's interesting though that he says DVD sales because I feel like DVD sales would go downhill regardless of whether or not there was YouTube mm. type piracy because just nobody's buying dvds anymore yeah why i mean that's why the internet was so successful when it first came out because it was the ability for people to be able to indulge in porn without having to buy a tangible product that they'd have to hide from their wife or their parents or something like that
1: and i think the porn dvds were were overpriced i think maybe the industry yeah yeah, the industry was a bit greedy yes yeah so Yeah. yeah so i think in 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 some ways, maybe the industry was slightly was slightly architects of their own des- destruction I mean oh absolutely yeah and the other thing that's really interesting is that you know of course, porn, as you know, has always been at the forefront of technological advances yes. but but they they kind of missed out when it came to to streaming mm-hmm. uh, because it was an outsider, it was fabian who who recognized how much money could be made from making a YouTube of porn
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: It feels to me. And I'm not, like, I'm not a porn historian, but it does feel to me that this was the first time that an outsider kind of came in and, and took over. Like, when it came to, like, VHSs or 16 millimeter or whatever, like, porn people were, like, right there, going, OK, mm-hmm. here's a new advance, let's mm-hmm. utilise it. But when it came to the YouTube of porn porn people are sort of slightly blindsided I think
0: well I think also too the industry has a history of being really terrible at like coming together and working together and all these companies like signing on to the same platform Mm. there's always been so much competition there and you know everybody wants to just do their own thing so I know that there was an attempt to create kind of like an iTunes of porn in the past but it just completely fell apart Mm. and so um, I yeah I think that you know, by Pornhub coming in and basically creating, like, this free channel where, like, all these different movies from everybody was on there, you know. Because everybody... People prefer, I think, to go to one place to get mm. everything as opposed to having to join 10 different fucking websites to see, you know, different things that they want to see, so... Mm. Um,
1: yes, absolutely. Oh, I mean, Pornhub is you know, it has been, like, for so many people, it's been, like, a kind of godsend. Yeah. But, but there's... Um, you know, there's things that people don't know, and the main, I think the main thing that people don't know is that so much of the content on Pornhub has has been piloted. Yes, um, and that's people's obviously people's main gripe, right? Because um, then what you have is a kind of giant flow of money from the valley into Fabian's pockets, and right. Fabian got so rich yeah. that he he had his own diver who would come in
0: yeah i remember that <laughs> yeah. it would clean the fish tank yeah. right? because it was so big he needed a scuba diver yeah
1: Jesus i mean you know you're doing well when you have a diver on the staff. yeah uh, so, uh, <laughs> uh whereas the porn people you know uh, cut to do new things to, to make yeah. money. so
0: it was interesting yeah. too what he said he was like look you know if i hadn't come along and done this somebody else would have which is not absolutely true which is absolutely true i think that um i mean and i feel like so much of this also goes back to like shame based around porn and based around sex you know like you know i mean obviously um it's i mean mainstream stuff gets pirated all the time too but I think that people really don't want to pay for porn because they just don't want like the charges on their credit card and they don't want to actually like, it feels like if you go through the motion of pulling out your card to pay for porn, then you're almost engaging in this dirty little secret more than you want to. Yeah. And I think
1: also a a misconception that some outsiders have about porn is that it's, Full of sort of shady people who might rip off your credit card, right? Which um,
0: did used to happen back in the early days of the right. internet. Absolutely, right. Um, so that's another reason why yeah. people would have been suspicious. That was that actually leads to my next question. So I wanted to ask you, what was? Did you have any preconceived notions about the adult industry before you came into it? Um, and and mm. what changed for you? Like, what was the biggest surprise for you um, mm. after you got to kind of? be on set and meet all these people
1: uh yeah you know I think because I remember saying to Fabian or I I either said it to him or I thought it um weren't you kind of scared like you were coming in and fucking up you know many you know like the lives of many people Mm -hmm. um you know financially um weren't you scared that they'd like come after you physically? And I suppose what that meant was that I was thinking the porn industry must be full of kind of scary mob type people.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that was my that was my preconception. Right. That it criminals. Would be, yeah, criminals. Mm. That it'd be criminals. And and I realized, you know, straight away that it's that that porn was much more like like being in an off-Broadway show. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> yeah, like kind of creative young people. Just, just like you know me. Yeah, like, like the porn industry was full of people who I would like because you know we're all like outsiders and are creative and and so that was my big that was my big kind of revelation that it was that it was yeah full of creative people. Mm. And, and not who weren't criminals. Um, I mean, Mike Quasar did say when we were making the butterfly effect, though, he did say at one point, don't get too rose-tinted. And he told me about, quote-unquote, suitcase pimps.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and, I, and for people who don't know, suitcase pimps are like boyfriends who turn up, you know, on set, hold the suitcase. But you sort of get the sense that
0: they're... Explo- controlling yeah, it, controlling yeah, maybe the girl. Yeah. A bit
1: psychopathic, maybe. Or yeah. maybe not a bit psychopathic, maybe psychopathic. <laughs> um, you would know you wrote the handbook. Exactly. Um, and yeah, I think there are people like that in the industry. Yeah. And, and um, according to Mike, I think he would say, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I think he'd probably say that's the thing he likes least about the industry is the mm. suitcase pimps.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think he, especially, he's told me, especially as he gets older, he's become more and more. Um, I guess affected by when he sees what he perceives to be women being exploited or mistreated and it is it is infuriating and we definitely still have the case you know I mean it's not just you know boyfriends it's agents Mm. um, producers sometimes but I will say that I have noticed um, a shift away from that especially since girls have the power of social media now Mm. um, to call these people out. And there's been a lot of that happening in the last couple of years. Right. Um, And so where it's, you know, gotten to the point that I think people are a lot more careful about how they treat the models. Um, Consent is a big topic. Mm. And uh, I think it's, I think it's a good thing.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that's, that's great. Yeah. Um, But yeah, my overall experience making the butterfly effect, I'm just going to, I know we're okay for time, but, I just want to – okay, I've got – I've actually got as long as, like, 50 minutes left, if that's yeah, okay. Yeah,
0: that's fine. Um, okay, that's good.
1: Because uh, my meeting's, like, literally around the corner. Okay, perfect. So, uh, yeah, but my overall experience making The Butterfly Effect was, was really positive. Mm. Uh, to the extent that when we finished the show, um, I did this event at the Ace Theatre in, Los Angeles, in uh, downtown L.A., mm-hmm. And It was full of like NPR type preppy people, and I knew that Lena had invited Mike Quasar, mm-hmm. Dan and Rhiannon from Anatomic Media, and Casey Calvert. And when I got off stage, like I just, I just thought, I, I want that, that's who I want to hang out with. Like mm-hmm. I don't, I don't want to hang out with um, you know my NPR pals. I want to hang out with you know Casey and Dan. Yeah. Um, it's and that made me realize. And I remember saying to them that night, like, I don't, I kind of don't want this to be over. Like, Mm -hmm. usually when I finish a story, um, it's finished, like, Mm -hmm. and and I'm very happy to move on to other things. But I just felt like when we finished The Butterfly Effect, I just didn't, I wasn't kind of ready to leave the industry. Like, I, I really liked them and I... Um, I felt like a great deal of warmth towards them and the whole experience of making the show was so pleasant. Uh, I kind of wanted to, to carry on. So so it, so it was a good experience. Do
0: you think that you felt some kind of connection in a way because you said growing up you felt very much an outsider and so now you were with this group of mm. outsiders and it, it kind of felt like there was some camaraderie there?
1: Yes, Yeah, I I really felt kind of akin to Mm. my porn pals. I mean, not the really young ones, not like the 18-year-olds, because I've got nothing in common
0: with them. (laughs) Yeah, tell me about it.
1: (laughs) But, uh, but you know, the slightly older ones, like Casey Calvert, for instance. Yeah. Yeah, Totally, yeah.
0: Yeah, and they're all lovely people. It's it's impossible not to like them. Mm. Um, So then you went on to do uh, The Last Days of August.
1: Yeah, which was obviously a... Very totally different.
0: different take on the adult industry yeah, and, and a very different
1: experience you know for us i and, was yeah
0: i was and, gonna say so um i think most of you know august ames was a very popular and well-loved performer who committed suicide has it been like two years now Yeah,
1: it was december the 5th 2017 yeah yeah,
0: yeah so yeah. god it's been so like, yeah, a, year it's like, like a year and a half ago yeah it's crazy yeah. um so what led you to decide to take that on because originally it was it just it was going to be an article right
1: yes uh so as well as me wanting to do more stuff in the porn world i also wanted to do more stuff with lena um mm-hmm. who you know who um produced um the butterfly effects with me you know i thought we had like a good you know we had a good
0: she's great i love know. her twitter she's so funny yeah <laughs> um
1: so we were like looking for other stuff to do together. So we were going to do something. We were going to do a Butterfly Effect story about Alex Jones, the conspiracy host, yes. who, who I've known for like 20 years. I, yeah. I knew Alex before. No, you
0: was, did a great piece on him.
1: Yeah. for You mean for The American Life? Yes. Yes. Yeah, so that was going to be the first part of season two of The Butterfly Effect. Yeah. Um, we heard this story about – so if the kind of flap of the butterfly's wings in The Butterfly Effect was Fabian coming up with the idea to give the world free porn – right? then the flap of the butterfly's wings in season two was going to be the story that we heard about Alex Jones. Because I've known Alex, you know, for 20 years. Yeah. Um,
0: Didn't you go to that really bizarre... um, Bohemian Grove. Bohemian, yes. yes. Me and him,
1: exactly. We we walked into this summer camp where people like George Bush... um, And you
0: both have like a very different recollection of what happened Yes, Alex thought we
1: would basically enter a satanic cult of globalists who worshipped a devil owl and committed human sacrifice. Right. And I thought we'd stumbled into a strange pageant.
0: <laughs> which actually was pretty
1: harmless. Uh well harmless is a, yeah, and maybe that's not the right word, but but not not a devil sacrificing cult. Right, right. I was pretty certain that we yeah. had come into that. Uh, uh, Alex was convinced of that in part because there were these owls, these giant owls everywhere. And in the middle of um, the forest, there was this huge stone owl, which Alex took to think, uh, took to um, was like, this was proof that they all worshipped Moloch, their owl god. But the fact was that there was this giant owl there because it was a fucking owl sanctuary. Uh, so. Um, <laughs> anyway, so me and Alex had that adventure.
0: Oh, that guy! Uh, if nothing else, that guy is one hell of an imagination. I remember Harry Shearer. Harry
1: Shearer, who was who's Mr. Burns in The Simpsons, right. had been invited to Bohemian Grove, and he was the only invitee who who would agree to talk to me. Uh-huh. And and he said the same thing. He said, like, you know, they're the conspiracy theorists of the greatest storytellers we have. Yeah, um, yeah, <laughs> and. Um, So we heard the story about Alex having this weird childhood experience um, which kind of set him on his path Mm -hmm. and it was all to do with him being lured to a party and beaten up by a group yeah. of kids. It's
0: a school. really, if you guys haven't listened to the the excerpt from This American Life, mm-hmm. um, I re- listened to it a couple of weeks ago and it's so, so good. What's Thank the you. actual name of it so people can easily uh, look for it? Beware the Jabberwock. Beware the Jabberwock. So go check that out because it's great. It's such a Thank great Thank you.
1: So that was going to be season two of The Butterfly Effect. Mm-hmm. But I kind of stalled. We had this amazing opening story. Uh, But then I kind of stalled a little bit when it came to looking at the consequences. Mm -hmm. Um, So then we looked at one or two other things and wasn't, you know, they didn't seem quite right. And then, yeah, six months after we left the porn industry, uh, August um, took her life. And I... Had you
0: met August? No,
1: Lena had met her, but I hadn't met her. Lena kind of embedded herself with, with Mike Quasar more than I did. Right. I w- I'd come and go, but right. Lena was there a lot. And uh, so she met her, but I didn't. Um, and I thought, because obviously the story at the time was that it was social media bullying that had, that had killed her. Right, right. She tweeted something kind of, you know, that came over as homophobic and and later that day, you know, was piled in on and and later that night took her life. Um, so I thought, honestly, I'll tell you what I thought. There there was one thing missing from So You've Been Publicly Shamed that I always slightly regretted. And it was, I I always thought I should do a chapter where all I do is meet the people who piled in on a particular person Mm. and just find out what was happening in their lives that day. Right. Um, I just thought that could be interesting, and I always regretted not. I thought that was a really good idea, but I came up with that idea after I'd finished the book. Right. So, to be completely honest, that that was my thought when when August died. I thought I'd I've spent so much time in the porn world, and I've written this book about public shaming, and there was that thing missing from that book that maybe I can rectify with with August's story. Mm-hmm. So, so I wanted to to write a kind of pretty short piece that would humanise her. But also humanise the people who piled in on her. Mm-hmm. So that was my kind of plan. But we decided to professional. So I so I contacted Kevin, her husband, and um, we professionally recorded the interview, only because we were just you know I was with Lena and we were just in the habit of professionally recording things. Right, right. Um, and I thought that would be it. So I thought I'll, I'll interview Jackson Wheeler, um, who had tweeted that she should take a cyanide pill yeah right and i'd interview jessica drake because kevin was very much sort of laying the blame on jessica drake right and um and that would be it and and maybe a couple of other people and that would be it so what were the pressures in jackson's life what were the pressures in jessica's life but then as soon as we started doing that and fact-checking people started telling us like other stories Mm -hmm. um and there was a lot of mystery. So, for instance, everyone was blaming Jackson Wheeler, but he'd written that cyanide tweet after August was already dead. Right. Um, and everyone was blaming... Which I didn't know, by the way. Right. Yeah. I was
0: really surprised when I heard that in your show because I, I knew a lot of the details mm-hmm. of what had happened, you know, from my conversations with Kevin and, mm-hmm. and you know, obviously having known August and everything like that. But that was one thing that, that your show did surprise me with. I was yeah. like, oh wow so you yeah. know we can't really blame him for no despite
1: it not not you know not being a great tweet no I, I mean hope it he was certainly yeah. certainly like a horrible
0: yeah. thing to say and he should have never ever yeah. said anything like that but
1: but we can't blame him and right. then and then my second kind of revelation i guess was finally reading jessica drake's tweets and it doesn't seem that bad mm-hmm. and And look, you know, I know enough about social media shaming to know that sometimes it's the gentle tweets that can hurt the most. Right. But even so, um, they just didn't seem that bad. Yeah. And uh, so we went to the AVN. We did a trip where we started off doing a little bit of Alex Jones butterfly effect stuff. Mm -hmm. And then we went to the AVN and... um, uh, met jessica drake and then somebody came up to me and sort of whispered you know if you really want to know what happened to august talk to emma hicks who was like one of august's best friends in the industry right and the general consensus i was getting was that her death was about more than social media bullying mm-hmm. and so then i had to kind of make a decision <laughs> do i right. carry on or do i stop right um so I thought we'd take some tentative steps forward. So we carried on a bit, and by then, honestly, what I was thinking was, if I stop now, then, I mean, this sounds kind of ridiculous and emotional, but sorry, it's give okay. a second. I still, for some reason, it's still, you know, it's inside my head a bit. But I just sort of thought if we stop now, then we'll be doing kind of August a disservice. Right. Um, so we, uh, yeah, so, so, so we carried on. But then we found ourselves in the impossible situation of how do we tell a humanistic story about August's death without harming, you know, the people around her. Right. And And that was just a... You know, I, I don't think I'd ever been in more of a kind of mind fuck situation than right. that is in a piece of journalism.
0: There was a lot um, of you in there. Uh, mm. and, and that that's what I really loved, I think, about the piece is, and that's what I think makes you so great as a journalist, is you constantly, because it wasn't, it seemed not only an exploration of August death and August suicide, but there was a lot of like person- of you personally being in the story and like questioning your own motives. Mm. Um, like the instance where Lisa Ann and you have that conversation. Yeah. And she kind of, you know, accuses you of um, you know, kind of Explo- raising a lot of like exploiting the industry and, and raising a lot of um bad feelings and and you know, you instead of attacking her on that, um, you you took that moment to reflect on like Am mm. I doing the right thing? Like, it, mm. you know, and yeah. I thought that was really powerful. And
1: and it was like, you know, it was kind of haunting me all year. Yeah. Um, especially when, you know, we came to realize that this wasn't a murder mystery. Because mm-hmm. at the beginning, I mean, people were saying, I, you know, I think she was murdered. Um,
0: yeah, there was some, speci- there were specifically some people that I think said some things that felt irresponsible to me.
1: Yeah. and And we just didn't know... You know, we we just didn't know what to think, right? Um, so we just didn't know. Yeah, but yeah, when we figured out, you know, this isn't this isn't a murder mystery. I can't remember actually where I was going with this thought. Um, just, just about the, I guess, the ethics right. of, of carrying on doing this story um, was kind of dizzying to me. Yeah, I got to say, like a lot of journalists and possibly me at a younger age wouldn't have. Um, got so worked up about the ethics mm-hmm. because we weren't actually doing anything that that was particularly sort of transgressive when it mm-hmm. comes to journalism like you know August was a public figure Kevin's a public figure um, and so on mm-hmm. so I think if I'd done this story when I was 25 I, I probably wouldn't have had any ethical concerns at all. Right. but you know now that I'm older, I, I was sort of, you know, kind of haunted with all of those concerns.
0: Right, right. Did you yeah. almost... What did you feel at the end? Did you feel any closure when you finished it? Did you feel like you had answered any questions? Did you feel like you understood August more or why she did what she did?
1: Yeah, I I, 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 I think... It's funny, I read something the other day which said something like, you know, John Ronson never totally gets to the bottom of, of why she died. But I actually think that I did. Like, I, I think if... I think I could, I could tell the story of why she died. Um, so I think I, I do, for, in terms of like trying to get to the bottom of why she died, unless there's a huge thing that we never found. Mm. I, I feel that we got there. I feel we solved we solved it.
0: What do you think? Do you think it was just a pile on of a lot of different things?
1: Yes, because
0: um, I still feel like. I don't know. I still feel like I don't know why. I, I just, uh, the whole thing surprised, the, I mean, surprised uh, all of us. Well, know. Do, you
1: to, do you want me to say yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. I mean, this is going to be quite hard. Okay. But, but I'll, I'll say it, what I think. So, you know, August was abused growing up by, by a family member, mm-hmm. sexually abused.
0: Who you, I noticed you bleeped them out. Yes. Uh, not
1: because I wanted to. Oh, <laughs> um, it okay. was It was legal advice. Oh, okay. Interesting. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I noticed that.
1: Um, our lawyers were really great. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, but, but that was the one thing where they said, and and I sort of thought, okay, you know, you know more about this than I do. Right. But yeah, we bleeped out the name of, you know, who the family member was. Right. Um, and for people listening who probably don't, you may not realize this, who haven't heard it, um, this is an awful lot to do with, with, with you, Holly. So, um, we... We Im- embedded quite a lot, probably like ten, ten minutes, maybe ten or fifteen minutes of, mm-hmm. of the interview that you did with her right. into our show, and it became incredibly important uh, for, for a million different reasons. But the main reason being that it was the only time we got to hear her voice, and, right. and and the interview you did with her was was brilliant. Thank you. And yeah, and you know, and in the moment, and and you know. So we embedded a whole bunch of it in in the show without totally seeking your permission to do it. <laughs> hey, I we kind of, yeah. We kind of, I know <laughs> we kinda of half sought your permission yeah. and, and got well, the sense- I
0: was I was very much on the fence about the whole thing because I was I mm. think as conflicted, you know, you talk about being conflicted, I was mm as well even though i had absolutely nothing to do with um the okay, events okay. leading up to it at all really it just was mm. a situation where i had her on my podcast and she opened up about things that you know and i'll go into my story about that when you're done uh-huh. um but, yeah, it, it, the whole thing – and I still am, like, confused and conflicted if I should re-release that episode yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And, but go I, on.
1: I, and me too. I think I've got exactly the same feelings that you have about but both, you know, about, you know, the whole thing. Right. Um, so, yeah, so so we'd embedded and, – and then we got to the end of it and realized that we hadn't got your written permission. and <laughs> And I was so – worried like I was yeah. so worried um because I thought I can't I, I can't take the stuff out of the show yeah um so so let me sort of say thank you like thank god you're and, welcome and thank you that you let us do it um the show would have been so much less powerful without it
0: yeah
1: and also you wouldn't have got to know her right um so you know she she was sexually abused as a young girl before the age of 12 Um, when she was 12 she finally opened up to her father about it and he didn't believe her right he took the side of the of the family member and sent her to a group home so she was rejected you know by her by her father And, and I think that was a huge kind of wound right um so then she enters the porn industry um I said to her brother James like do you think there's any connection and James sort of said, I I, I don't know. Like on the one hand, maybe you could say she was trying to kind of reclaim her sexuality. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, she was like a cheerleader at school and a kind of exhibitionist. and You know, so we just don't know. Right. Uh, So she entered the porn industry. And for a while, I think everything was great. Um, But then a few things happened to sort of isolate her again. Like, So she'd been rejected by, you know, by her family, by her father's side of the family. Then she moves to the valley um, she already had you know various mental health issues um presumably as you know as a result of the childhood trauma uh six weeks before she died, she shot a scene that you know she really wasn't happy with uh she felt that the guy had gone way too hard on her. She kind of blames herself for not saying no or stop. But in the moment, she just didn't. So she just mm-hmm. went along with it. You know, maybe in a kind of conflict aversion way that I think a lot of people have, including me. I'm conflict averse. And so sometimes mm-hmm. you end up going along with an unpleasant situation because you don't want to say say no.
0: Right. Um, I and mean, the subject has been brought up, especially since all of this came to light by a lot of performers who have talked about going through a scene that they weren't comfortable with because you know, they kind of figure, well, I'm I'm more than halfway through the day. Mm-hmm. Everyone's already put so much work into today. You know, this is costing these producers, these people this much money. If I don't follow through on this, I won't get paid. Yes, I may as well just see it through to the end.
1: Yeah, that absolutely. Kind of and because there's a sexual component to it, like, you know, I, I have no doubt that lots of non-porn performers will have all of those same thoughts. Right. But there's not a sexual component to it, so, right. which makes things a bit more complicated, I guess. Right. Um, so I'm sure that triggered memories of her childhood abuse, and that, without in any way blaming like the people in the room, because because right. they didn't, you know, they didn't know. Right. Um, that coincided with uh, August's husband Kevin, for his own reasons, growing emotionally distant from her. Mm-hmm. So I think probably when she, when she need I'm sorry, there's all this shouting in the next room. That's okay. Is it, it's not really bugging us, is it? No, it's not. Okay. Oh, but I mean, you can hear it faintly, but I just wanted to see how loud
2: it was in real life.
0: And the That's okay. okay. We're in a hotel. Yeah. What are you going to do? This is raw in the moment, <laughs> <Exactly>. unfiltered. <laughs> okay. I have lots of time. Uh,
1: so, so her, her bad experience on that set in Las Vegas happened to coincide with Kevin not being kind of emotionally available to her for, for his own reasons. right? Um, and then, so again, there's a sort of sense of isolation.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think isolation is the word that, that you get over and over again when yeah. you're looking at... Uh, also, they had moved to a part of the valley that that was pretty cut off. They moved to, the, to Camarillo, which yeah. was like, you know... It's quite far. Quite far. Uh, and then six weeks later... So she was, like, physically isolated. She said on your podcast that she goes to the cinema by herself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, they take pity on her and give her free popcorn. So yeah. that was her telling stories about... And then she said, but then she's, like, on her Twitter and her Instagram. And then six weeks later, she felt like Twitter had rejected her. Yeah. So it's like rejection after rejection after rejection. Yeah. And, and some some real... Well, I mean, all real, but some, I guess you would say, more... Um, malevolent than others mm-hmm. like kevin um withdrawing from her you know he was doing for his own his own reasons I mean, right. I'm, I'm sure that wasn't an act of malevolence it was just that, that was the bubble that he was in at the time right uh so that's my answer like why why did she, i would say it was a combination of all of those things just all right. piled in on her
0: yeah, well, and she did also talk too on my podcast about you know having you know issues with mental health and and having real severe downs. Mm. And she said
1: she said that she had multiple personality disorder, which um, on on your podcast, yeah. right? Which that always felt a little um, that the one thing that didn't I don't know that just didn't quite sort of fit. Like you don't, but but that, but that's probably in part because I'm not massively familiar with multiple personality disorder
0: right well and also too she could have been i mean where did she get that diagnosis from yeah did a did a therapist give it to her did she self-diagnose like we don't we no. don't really know
1: and that's another issue which i think the porn world could cure very easily which yeah. is that there's no therapist who specialize in porn people
0: yeah, I have to say, you know, after we had that – after that podcast, I did talk to her about my therapist because, you know, I'd been through quite a few before I found one that I that I really liked. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I don't perform in front of the camera, but there's definitely a, a bias, I think, among a lot of therapists who think – oh, you work in porn, that is the source of, you know, many of your problems Mm -hmm. and your issues and and that kind of thing. So it really works against you if you want to remain a performer but also still seek mental health. And I I recommended My Girl to her, but she's, you know, she lives in Camarillo. I live in Culver City. Like, it's it's way too far. And um, I should have followed up with her and given her some other suggestions because I was – I think I did ask my therapist if she knew of any other people closer to August – um that august could see but i just Mm. i didn't you know and and i think it's a story of so many people i mean that always happens after somebody dies you think oh my god i could have done this Mm. oh my god i could have done that i mean yeah you know i'm sure that you know so i know so many of her of her friends were just like i wish i had known what you were going through i wish i had seen the signs i know kevin blames himself you know and he wishes that he had yeah. He had had some idea that that was going to happen. I know Jessica, you know, obviously wishes that she had known that her tweet would have affected August in that way. She, I know she would have never said it. I mean, it's just all of these yeah. these things that, that, I mean, it's just, you know, I don't think anybody had any intention of hurting August in any way that would have driven her to do what she did. Yeah, But it's just all those little things and, you know, you just... It's impossible to know. Yeah, hindsight's twenty twenty.
1: So my question, you know, for my myself is, because I think yes, everything you just said is absolutely true. So is there a value in making a documentary about that? Right, right. And the, the, the response to the documentary has been like overwhelmingly positive, mm-hmm. both for the people in it, including Kevin and Jessica, and, and also listeners. Um
0: how has because i haven't spoken to Kevin since it's come out
1: um i i spoke to him and and, and I think Lena spoke to him a few times i've spoken to him twice and lena spoke to him a few times Has and, he actually listened to it and and uh, he's you know he didn't criticize it okay um he's i mean i don't want to put words in his mouth right. but but you know we had a pleasant we had a very pleasant conversation that's good um i mean the the only value is if it can prevent if it can prevent something like this from happening again, make people think more about kind of listening to people. I mean, it's most definitely helped me. Mm -hmm. Like it's made me sort of wiser. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's my hope is that there's a a literal value because if there's not, there was no reason to make it.
0: Yeah, I I have to say that um, since her death, I have noticed, you know, on social media, a lot of girls trying to reach out to other girls. If girls talk about self-harm, a lot of people try to reach out and contact them. So I I think that her death has, you know, taught a lot of us a lesson in, you know, really trying to be listen to people people and and really trying to recognize the signs of people. And, and, And also to just recognize how, like... Something like a severe depression can take somebody who, you know, a few days ago was just fine Mm. and just take them out. I mean, the one thing about August that so many of us remember is just what a joy she was to be around. She was such a joyful person. She was always laughing. She was always making jokes. She was just lovely. Like she just made you – feel better about yourself and she just made set like such a more pleasant place to be. She was one of my favorite girls to work with.
1: Right. So how so you, did you work with her and kind of know her a lot?
0: I mean, I worked with her a lot, but I can't say that I was like a close friend of hers. Mm. You know, we didn't hang out outside of, of work or anything mm. like that. So that's why when... You know, I ha- after she died, I had so many media outlets come up to me and ask for interviews because of the podcast. Mm. But I turned every single one of them down because I really didn't feel like I was in any position of authority to speak about her and her life and how she was feeling and what she was going through. It just – it didn't feel right. Mm. I just didn't feel like I was the right person for that Um and uh to be honest, you know, when she came on my podcast and she talked about, you know, the the sexual abuse and her depression issues, I was floored. Like I did not expect her to go that deep. Mm. When I asked her to come on my show, um, you know, she'd always been open about her issues and her battles with depression on social media. So, when I asked her to come on my show, I said, "Hey, you know, do you want to maybe um would you talk about you know, your Mm -hmm. depression. I I know that that's something you've been open with on social media. And I feel like a lot of people can relate and um, maybe it would be like a Mm -hmm. good thing to talk about. Mm -hmm. And uh, she said, absolutely. I would love to. And I was like, okay, great. And to be fair, like I was, my podcast was brand new. I think she was like my ninth episode or something like that. So this was actually the first time that like, I think I'd had a conversation with someone where I was even trying to explore, like a a darker or a more intimate side of them as a person. Mm. And so well, she was a
1: brilliant person to to do that with because she was just so open. Open and, and, and great at talking about it. I right. so eloquent.
0: Right. Mm. And so um when she so when I brought that question up and she just launched into the story about, you know, the the family member and her father not believing her and everything that she went through, I just remember sitting there going this is going way further than i expected like i had no idea <laughs> right. she was gonna go this far and just being like she, it almost felt like a runaway train yeah. i was like do i like stop her and like tap, like you know be like mm. do you realize like the things that you're saying um i think you did it perfectly like you didn't Kind
1: of egg her on in a in a way that right. seemed inappropriate, and and you didn't stop her. I was listening to an interview the other day, actually, a, a, a guy I won't say the names because I don't want him to feel bad, mm-hmm. um, but I was listening to an interview a couple of days ago where where a pop star was talking about childhood abuse,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and the guy interviewing him, who's a really good interviewer, but he was so shocked, he he kind of changed the subject and didn't yeah. really and didn't really let the guy talk about yeah. it um, which was wrong so, so I, I right. think you got the balance absolutely right
0: well I tell everybody who comes on my show that um, well I guess I didn't tell you but mm. <laughs> I'm telling you now um, if you know you want to take anything out after the fact if you feel like maybe you said too much you revealed too much in, in the moment and um, you're not mm. comfortable with me publishing the podcast that way I can always edit stuff out I always want people to feel comfortable mm. um, to speak openly and also to retract something if they feel like they spoke too openly so mm-hmm. i said that to august at the beginning and so when she went on about that i just thought to myself i'm like you know what she's probably gonna want me to take this out and i, I can do that so mm-hmm. i'll wait till after the podcast and then i'll ask her which i did and um so we ended the show and i said you know you said a lot of stuff mm-hmm. and you really opened up and you talked about some really deeply personal things.'" Are you sure that you want me to release the podcast like that? And she's like, "Absolutely." Mm. And I was like, "You're sure?" She's like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, I definitely. I'm I'm so glad that I said it. I feel like I got a weight off my chest." And I'm like, "Okay." I'm like, "Well, I'm not going to release this for a couple of weeks, so um I'll check back in with you and you can I can send it to you. You can listen to it, you know." And she's like, "No, no, no. I'm fine." I'm like, "All right." So I checked back in with her like two more times before I released it. I'm like, Are you sure you want me to put this out? Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? She was like, Yes, I'm sure. Yes, I'm sure. So I'm like, Okay. And I did. And then after it came out, you know, she got a lot of like feedback that was really positive. You know, people were really impressed by her bravery. People, a lot of people related to her story. A lot of people related to her issues with depression. Um, I feel like it really humanized her in a way that, you know, people had never seen this side of her before. And a lot of people said, you know, um, I I loved you before as a porn star, but like now I love you as a human. Mm. And that was really moving for me. And I feel like that was really moving for her. And I remember she told me that she was so happy that she did it.
1: Right. And and just in general, you do now humanizing porn stars is is just such a great thing to do because, yeah. And, and you know, I did this porn podcast recently. I'm, you did another porn I podcast. Did, but it's it's European. I'm any- <laughs> so upset. <laughs> but her first, the first <laughs> thing she said to me was, "Thank you for humanizing us," and, mm. and I sort of said. Isn't that nuts that yeah. you should be thanking somebody for right. demonising you? Um, but you do such an incredible, you know, brilliant job, it. and it's so important because it's like you know at the beginning of the Butterfly Effect. Or one of the things in the Butterfly Effect was I met this this young woman who's at a church school in New mm. Orleans, and she was telling me about her, you know, watching porn. Herb and I said, "Did you ever learn their names? Now, did you ever get so into it that you'd learn their names?" And she said, "No. It's like when you kill a deer." You don't name it because then you can't eat it.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I remember that part. Yeah.
1: And, you know, what you're doing is you're naming the deer. You're forcing people to yeah. to name the deer that Some they're So I'm eating. just
0: ruining porn for people. <laughs> you will never be able to watch porn again with any of the people uh, that I've interviewed in it because you're like, oh, she's a human being. There goes my boner. <laughs> yeah, <right. laughs> but
1: it's clearly an such an important thing to do, right?
0: It's it's The feedback's yeah. been really great. I've been yeah. really happy that um, people feel like... I. I guess some people feel like what I'm doing is important, which is amazing because I don't feel like I've ever done anything that people have felt is important before. Like nobody's ever been like, Oh my God, you're making this really hot porn. That's so important for society, (laughs) you know? And now I feel like I'm doing something that I don't know, means something to people, which is, which is great. But anyways, enough about me. Um, so yeah. So when the podcast came out, you know, she was so, uh, she was very proud of it. And so, when it was out it felt very much like a a girl who was brave who was opening up about her struggles but you know who was still here and she was still fighting them every day and she was an inspiration and that kind of thing and so when she took her own life the whole feel of of the podcast just felt different mm-hmm. right because in the end there's no she didn't yeah, yeah it was like the 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 mental everything like she lost. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And um and so when she died, I was so surprised. And I wasn't involved in the Twitter Um, pile on at all. I remember I was scrolling through Twitter and I like saw one of her tweets where she said about not being homophobic Mm -hmm. and I didn't even like really look or engage or look at the thread and I just thought, you know, in my head I just thought, oh, people being stupid on Twitter again, you know. Like, I see porn stars being attacked on Twitter all the time. Mm -hmm. So I just kind of like didn't even really look into it. So then when I found out um, on set the next day that she had killed herself, I just like, didn't believe it and I was like why and then I went back and I looked at everything and I was like oh my god and um what was
1: the end I mean like in the immediate aftermath of of her death was was there like a lot of very shocked people or because there's a lot of death in the industry were people sort of less shocked
0: oh I think everyone was beyond shocked Mm. because August was not like I said she was always like I mean, all of us remember, you know, if you look at everybody's like videos that they posted of her picture, she was always laughing. She was always smiling. Mm-hmm. I mean, I knew that she battled with depression, but every time I saw her, she always seemed so happy.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So it almost seemed like this ancillary thing that just kind of came up. Sometimes it wasn't like consuming her life, I guess, in the way that it was. I didn't realize, I mean, it's amazing how, you know, some people are just really good at putting up this front yeah. and just, you know, and, um, and it's interesting because, you know, in your, in your podcast, um, after that scene that you discussed where, you know, she didn't want to stop and uh, where well, she didn't want to call stop and cut the scene. And afterwards, you know, she was so concerned about the producers feeling bad about yeah. what happened. That's and so that's, that's
1: sort of heartbreaking, but also kind of telling and human that's that's what i'm
0: saying so i think like you know there was a big part of her that just wanted you know everybody to be happy Mm. and so maybe a part of her always appearing to be happy was like i think she always wanted people around her to feel good and, and she definitely did that so i i think that we were all like beyond shocked um and like i said you know like porn stars get attacked on twitter all the time so, like the fact that it would lead to to her death, I think was was beyond surprising. Yeah. Um, so then I spoke to, so I didn't know what to do with my podcast. You know, I, I was like, do I keep it up? Do I take it down? Like, what do I do? And then you know, all these news media outlets started sensationalizing it. You know, headlines. Yeah, August, it was Ames. all coming
1: from your podcast. It was all coming it? from
0: my podcast. You know, August Ames talks about you know sexual me- molestation like this is why she died and i was like oh my god you know they were taking my podcast and turning it into this like sensational news story in these headlines and it was just like really upsetting and um and i talked to kevin and i was like do you think i should take it down like i don't know what to do you know because i don't cuz ultimately at at that time i was just like i don't want to cause any more pain to her family right now and to the people that love her, because I can't imagine what they're going through. And Kevin hadn't listened to it, but he said, you know, I I think probably, yeah, Mm -hmm. maybe take it down. So I was like, okay, I'll take it down. I'll I'll do it. And I was kind of relieved, you know, that he said that because I needed like someone to tell me what to do because I didn't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And so I took it down and I got a lot of backlash for that, which um, is one person in particular said something that I thought was um, actually really insightful. And he said, you know, By taking down August's podcast, you took away her voice. Because now the only thing that we know about her is the headlines, you know, and the excerpts that people pulled from your podcast and put in these news stories and The Guardian and and whatever. Um, And, you know, you don't – by taking away her podcast, you took away her voice and and you're not letting her tell her story anymore. And she wanted that podcast to be up. She did the podcast. She gave you permission to post it, like – she yeah. wanted that out there. So now you've taken that from her. And I was like, that's that, a...
1: Yeah, it's a good point. <laughs> it makes sense.
0: good point. But then on the other hand, I'm also like, I don't know, you know, again, like, I don't want to cause her family, you know, any any more pain. And and so anyways, I've been kind of struggling with whether or not I should put it back up because I thought maybe after some time had passed, I would. And so when when your podcast came out, I kind of thought to myself, maybe this is the right time to do it. Because again, like there's pieces of her in Mm. yours in the last days of August, but it's not her whole story. So like, Mm. do I put out her you know our podcast and let her tell her whole story since you know only like bits of pieces of august have been told in yours because yeah. there's so much more that we talked about besides yeah. her battle with depression and everything we talked about her love of camping and like you yeah. know happy things too yeah. so um I don't know what do you think
1: oh i I think at this stage you probably should you think I should yes I do um I do because really like who would you be offending if you don't I mean the only Two people who could possibly be hurt from you putting it back up are her father and and her abuser, mm-hmm. her childhood abuser. Um, and they kind of they know. It's like they they both know. So I I don't think yeah. if you put it back up you'd be you'd be telling them anything that they don't know right and the information's kind of out there anyway it's definitely
0: out there now especially with yeah your show yeah
1: so i i think it's i think it's okay to put it back up i I think that you know the person who said to you you're taking away her voice i mean i felt that like before we got your permission to use bits of it Mm -hmm. in our show i was thinking god you know if if we have to take away her voice from this show it's going to be it's going to be awful and um so I think you should put it back up. That's, yeah. my, that's my opinion.
0: Yeah, I, I've I've been thinking that as well. And, and I've just been like – a lot of it has been like questioning my motives. I'm like, okay, why am I putting it back up? Am I really doing it because, you know, I mm. feel like it's it's for August. It's a yeah. service to her. Or am I doing that because I want like more download numbers? You know, like mm. I've, it's just been this like real internal conflict because – and another reason that I, I turned down so many of those interviews – after she um, took her life, was like, I didn't want to feel like I was doing anything close to a publicity grab with this. Mm. Like, that just felt so gross to me. Yeah. So, um, so I think I, if I do release it, I will definitely, like, put no ads on it um, and then maybe just do, like, a suicide prevention, like, PSA. Mm. Talk about um, some of the good things that have come out of this, which has been, uh, there's now, um, you know, Pineapple is this, like, mental health, mm. Outlet for people in the adult industry. Yeah,
1: I've talked to them a few times. So, do you think that's because I've I've often thought, wouldn't it be great? Because lots of people have tried to do stuff in Mm -hmm. the past and then sort of fallen by the wayside. But it feels like pineapple support are actually, it's it's kind of feels real and it's sort of coalescing. And like, um, do do you get that feeling?
0: I do, and you know, also the Inspire program, which Mm -hmm. is also like a resource for people in the industry. And I'm actually going to have Lotus Lane who helped, um, create, uh, I believe helps create, um, the, uh, inspire program. I'm going to have her on my show in a couple of weeks to talk more about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I do think that it's something that like, you know, we've been, the adult industry knows that it should have some kind of resource like that. And I, I do believe that it was August death that really kind of lit that fire because you know now we're like and and not to not just her, but there was you know several other girls who died that year as well, yeah, and you know has really shown um that there is a need for that,
1: yeah you know after after I talked to Kevin after the show came out one one um thing I did after I spoke to Kevin, which was because of you know a conversation I had with him, was I actually I actually tried to reach out to the people who own the um the cam sites mm. like Chatterbait, because mm-hmm. I know that they're, they're the ones with all the money now. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I I wonder if any of them might just might be listening to this because I what I what I would have said to them had they got back to me was, you know, you've got all the money. Clearly there's a need for mental health support in the industry. There's no, you know, there's, there's few therapists. Porn people don't know where to go if they want therapy. Right. And, and, you know, why don't you invest some of your money in, in that? Maybe hook them up with pineapple or something or right. a group like that. So anyway, I tried to reach out to some of these people, but just nobody, nobody got back to me. And, and, uh, but if anyone, anyone who in, in that sort of position of authority is listening to this, then, you know, please contact me or Holly and we can try and, that happening maybe
0: yeah yeah Um, maybe again like i'm I'm looking forward to having um lotus on and exploring more of um these resources because i don't know enough about them you know i have i have my own resources i have my own therapist i have my own 12-step program i got a lot of a lot of outside (laughs) help you know to help with this this but i know that a lot of girls lack that you know and i feel like you know um, therapy is only becoming a th- therapy and reaching out for help and acknowledging mental health issues um and and not shaming people around that I think is kind of still a new thing you know like men- mm. mental health is still something that has a lot of stigma around it, mm. and I think people are only really just starting to open up about it yeah and um you know if if anything um if anything, I hope that you know August maybe did us a favor of, of really pushing us in that direction Yeah, in a way, maybe that's something that, that she, she left with us.
1: Yeah. you'd, you'd I mean, you'd, you'd hope so. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's clear that the industry needs something, that there's a yeah. whole, there's a gap there and, and, and it can be filled. I mean, that's why, that's why I reached out to the webcam people because mm-hmm. you know, the way, the 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 gap can be filled just with money yeah so
0: yeah i mean therapy costs money yeah all that costs money exactly well thank you so much john holly
1: thank you thank you not only for this but you know for like everything you've you've done of course um and but also talking to you's just been you know so nice
0: Oh, thank you. Hi. And uh, thank you for inviting us into your beautiful hotel room. Um, can you tell everybody, you know, it's kind of funny. I actually forgot we were doing a podcast because <laughs> this felt like it became like such an intimate conversation. I'm like, oh, yeah, I need to like close this out in a normal way. Can you tell everyone where they can find you on social media? Yes.
1: So my, my, uh, on Twitter and on Instagram, I am at John Ronson.
0: That's J-O-N, by the way, people. No
1: H. I'm actually writing a live show. I'm sort of closing off my all of this last three years of my life by doing a live show where I tell stories from both the Butterfly Effect and the Last Days of August in Britain and Ireland, and that's throughout May. So, if you happen to be in either of those countries, I'll be doing some some shows in May where I'm telling more stories from, from those two podcasts uh yeah that's that's that's
0: so do you have stories that didn't make it into the podcast that you tell or are you just retelling stories that are in it
1: i'm talking um a bit of a bit of both and also i'm writing a whole lot of new stuff two about kind of about what happened to me it had a sort of impact on my mental health telling this this story so I'm kind of unpacking that a bit and writing about like what happened to me as a result of making the show as well so it's a mix what I'm trying to do and I've done this with other with previous stories I've done um, is that I'm trying to write a show that will work both for people who've, who've heard who've heard it and also people who haven't so there has to be some stuff that's actually in the podcast but I'm also writing a whole lot of new stuff too
0: oh cool yeah fantastic
1: so that's in May and yeah I'm John Ronson I'm not on Facebook very much so don't look for me there (laughs) uh I I consider somebody else said this but I kind of see Facebook as like an admin job and Mm. why why do you want that in your life (laughs) 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 but I'm on Twitter and Instagram
0: And um, you can find his both podcasts on iTunes now, right?
1: Yeah. It should be kind of pretty much everywhere that you get your podcasts.
0: Okay. So The Last Days of August and The Butterfly Effect. And you've done other podcasts as well. Uh, Do you have like a list of all the shows you've done um, on your website or anything like that? uh,
1: no, um, <laughs> I haven't actually done that many podcasts. I did a show for the BBC called mm-hmm. John Ronson on, which, which lasted for like seven seasons. Okay. Um, so that's kind of floating around actually BBC sounds have just bought that out. I've noticed <laughs> someone okay. told me, yeah, I'm, I'm going to get 5,800 pounds for that. Woo! And, um, <laughs> uh, minus agency commission. Uh, uh and, um, but I've written, like, a bunch of books and movies and stuff.
0: And you've been, like, a yeah. frequent guest on NPR, on This American Life, which is my favourite podcast of all time. Lena, congratulations on getting your job there. That's so cool. Yep.
1: <laughs> and she's where she should be. She's in her right place. Yeah, she's yeah. awesome. She's, she's amazing. She's great. She always wanted to um, to do more sort of on-air reporting. Mm-hmm. And, and she's obviously really great at it. I mean, in, in mm-hmm. the last days of August um, – She's very much a sort of character in it. And yeah. we both watched that, that footage of, of the, the, the scene that August, you know, shot that mm-hmm. went badly. And I thought it would be so much better for, for Lena to, to tell the story of us yes. watching that than than me. And she did it absolutely beautifully. And um, yeah, and, and as a consequence, well, not as a consequence, like anyway, uh, people are beginning to notice how good she is, not just as a producer, but also as a reporter. So i think that's where she's where she's headed
0: fantastic yeah all right thank you guys so much for tuning in and um john again thank you so much thanks Holly. i look forward to having you over for sunday lunch sometime in, towards in june. the end of june yes I, i'm very
1: excited about i'm gonna that.
0: introduce him to my mother
1: and i'm gonna go to a malibu ranch which i've got to say sounds incredibly exciting it's pretty cool it's pretty cool uh, are you up in the hills
0: uh, yeah, yeah, uh-huh. in the Santa Monica Mountains.
1: Are you near like? Is that near like Malibu State Creek Park? Exactly. Creek okay, where exactly. where the, the Mash Set is?
0: Yes. Well, is no longer because Paramount Ranch burned down. Oh. In the Woolsey Fire.
1: Oh shit! Like, yeah. So, so all the old Mash stuff's gone.
0: I believe so. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah.
1: Oh, it was so exciting. We were hiking in that park, and we just turned on the, turned the corner, and there was like. MASH, there was yeah. like some of the, the old ambulances
0: and stuff. Yeah, yeah. It's. Uh, I mean, I know Paramount Ranch for sure burned down. I don't know if the MASH set burned down. I think, so. I think it did. Oh, yeah, I think that all went all went terrible. up, unfortunately. Oh, well. Yeah. well <sighs> on, that, on that positive note. <laughs> all right, thank you guys so much. We'll see you next week. I want to thank my guests for coming by and chatting with us today. And a big thanks to you for tuning in. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do me a favor and give us a five-star rating and review on iTunes. It really helps us more than you know. And if you're interested in behind-the-scenes access to the show, special bonus content, live streams of us taping the podcast, and more, check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash Unfiltered. You can even submit your own questions or get an autographed photo from one of our guests. Next week on the show, we have Small Hands – or otherwise known by his real name as Aaron. He is a up and coming performer, so much so that he won male performer of the year at the Xbiz awards last year. He's Joanna Angel's husband and he's just a really lovely, fascinating guy. So make sure that you come back next week for small hands on Holly Randall unfiltered.